Hello and welcome to the Art Engager podcast with me, Claire Bowne. I'm here to share techniques and tools to help you engage with your audience and bring art, objects and ideas to life. So let's dive into this week's show. Hello and welcome back to the Art Engager podcast. I'm your host, Claire Bowne of Thinking Museum, and this is episode 56. Now, in today's solo episode, I'm talking about ways to work with objects that you might find boring or uninspiring. I'm sharing how we can learn to use slow looking to perhaps learn to love objects that we might otherwise overlook or reject. And also how we can get our visitors and participants excited by these types of objects too. But before that, last week I had a lovely chat with educator, facilitator and author Jess Vance. So do go back and listen to episode 55 when you get a chance. And as always, support the show by treating me to a cup of tea on buymeacoffee.com forward slash Claire I'll put a link in the show notes. And all the links, as always, are available in the show notes, which you can find on my website, thinkingmuseum.com forward slash podcast, and look for episode 56. So now let's get on with today's show. So I had a chat recently with a fellow educator about how we can work with objects that we don't instantly feel attracted to, objects that might leave us uninspired or those that perhaps we might even find boring. Now, we can't possibly love everything in a museum's collection. There are always going to be some objects or artworks that we are drawn to for some reason. And equally, there will also be objects or artworks that leave us cold. And sometimes in our work as educators, objects or artworks are imposed upon us as part of a guided tour or educational program, and we have to learn to work with them in our own way. Now, there may be many reasons why we don't connect with them. It could be the way they look, the way they are displayed, and what they're displayed with. It could be the space around them. Perhaps it makes it hard to work with them and be there with groups. It could be the subject matter, something relating to the history of the object or artwork or the artist or many, many other reasons. Or it could just be that we don't feel any connection to this object at all. So we may have to work with a painting or a sculpture or an object that we don't like because it's part of a guided tour or an educational program or because it's a highlight of the collection. But I think visitors can tell when we're not excited or enthusiastic about something. And even if they can't tell, it is much better to be enthusiastic as that energy is contagious and will transfer to your participants too. Now also, something else to bear in mind, every museum or art gallery has its superstar or highlight objects. And these are the objects or artworks that get far more attention than others. They're usually well positioned, they might even be spotlighted and quite often have a space all to themselves. So as much as this episode is about how we, as educators, guides, docents, can learn to love boring objects, it's also about how we can get our visitors to love objects 
that are less well known too. How can we get visitors interested in these less popular but still fascinating objects? How can we engage them with ones that may seem a little boring or mundane at first glance? So today, I'm going to share examples of two objects that only came to life for me once I'd spent time with them. And I hope these examples will provide some inspiration for you to search out the boring and the mundane objects in your organisations and to fully embrace them. Spending some time slow looking with objects that you're not immediately excited by will, I promise, transform the way you see them. And at the end of this episode, I'm sharing the key takeaways from these two examples and how they can teach us to love boring objects. So here's my first example. A few years ago, I took a Dutch bean slicer or a snijbone molar in my suitcase to a conference, a Museum Next conference in Geneva. Now, I was leading a workshop there on using visible thinking for creating dialogue with objects. And I'd already selected painting for discussion, but I wanted an object that I could use to demonstrate that you can use thinking routines with any type of object. Now, this wonderful Dutch bean slicer was chosen from a special room. It was a real cabinet of curiosities from the Museum Studies Department at the Rijnwaard Academy in Amsterdam. And all the objects in this room were collected by the late Nico Halbertsmart for students to use to create museum tours and learn about object-based learning. So it was a real treasure trove. And I chose this object not just because I was fascinated by it, but because I believed it told stories on multiple levels. Now, I wasn't immediately bowled over by its beauty. It's quite functional. Um, It's quite brown. But at the same time, I was intrigued as to how long we could spend discussing such an ordinary-looking everyday object using See, Think, Wonder. So I'll share a photo in the show notes, and you'll see that it's not the most beautiful of objects. It's well-designed, yes, but it's not a thing of immediate beauty. Or was it? So we started looking at it from all angles. We looked from above, from below, from the front, from the back. And after looking at it for a while, I let participants then handle the object and examine its movable parts. And I invited members of the group to start describing it. They noticed it was brown, made of cast metal, with a handle that turned and sharp blades on the other side. So after we'd finished describing it, we started talking about what we thought it could be. And due to the handle and the cutting blades, the first thoughts were to do with cutting and sharpening implements, possibly pencils and grating or cutting vegetables. And the group were working collaboratively, they were building on each other's ideas until they had almost unilaterally agreed that it was a device for cutting some kind of fruit and vegetable. So we then moved on and we were thinking about why anyone might need such a device and when they would use it. And one of the group members suggested that it could have been from the mid-20th century and perhaps it was a labour-saving device. And someone else, who was Dutch-born, said it reminded her of something her grandma had had in her kitchen to chop green beans. 
But why would anyone want all their vegetables the same size and shape, someone else asked. And what exactly is wrong with irregularly chopped vegetables? Now, from time to time throughout this discussion, I added small amounts of information to pursue different lines of inquiry and to keep the discussion fluid. I frequently asked the group to provide evidence for their interpretations. My favorite question, what do you see that makes you say that? And I pushed the group to explore all possibilities and to look for any connections they could find. Now, in the end, I had to wrap up the conversation, although most of the group still had lots more to say. We reflected together about the different levels of meaning that we had uncovered about this object, functional, symbolic, personal and historical. And we'd done this just with the simple thinking routine, see, think, wonder. Now, after all of this, we'd easily talked for 25 minutes about a Dutch bean slicer. And some members of the group were very sceptical about the ability of such an object to hold our attention for more than five minutes. But throughout, all the participants were enthusiastic and keen to contribute, and their curiosity to find out more really drove the discussion. But here's what was fantastic. The group wanted to carry on discussing this object, but they didn't want the discussion to end. They wanted to return and learn more with other objects. So they left the workshop with this very unassuming, quite boring object, still curious and uplifted. So that's example number one, but I want to share another story about an object that I wasn't captivated by either. So one of my favourite objects now at the Tropen Museum is the Great Pustahar. However, I used to walk past this object without a second glance until a good colleague suggested I take a closer look. Now again, I'll share a photo in the show notes so you can look at it too. But it's a brown wooden object. It's fairly large. It has four feet And on top of it, it looks a bit like a book without a spine. Then there's a decorated top with a mystical creature sitting on the top. It sits in its own display case. So here am I deciding to take a closer look at this object. So every lunchtime I went to see it. I looked at the shapes, the colours, the patterns, the detail. I looked at the parts that I hadn't really looked at before. I made notes. I thought about what questions I had when I looked at the object. I thought about what interested me and what I wanted to find out more about. I looked and I looked again. And then I did some research. I talked to the curator. I did some more research. I went back and I looked again. I discovered that the Pustahar is an ancient book used by Batak priests in North Sumatra. And these books, they were used by priests as notebooks for recipes and healing remedies for songs and notes on magic. Now, although the Trope Museum have 150 of these Pustaha in its collection, most of them have plain wooden covers. The rest are in museum storage. Only this one is on display. Why? 
That was something that was really intriguing to me. And there are also many other elements of mystery that I found out about this object. For example, why is there a handle on the top? How did the priest use the book? Did he read it? Did he sing it? And who was listening? And where did this take place? Now, I've never seen the book open in person, but you can now view the beautiful pages on Google Arts and Culture, so I'll also include a link to that. Now, this particular Pustaha, the Great Pustaha, is unique because of its size, its age, and the decoration. And the text on it is written on tree bark. It folds in a zigzag fashion, almost like an accordion. And when the 56 pages of this Pustaha are unfolded, it reaches almost 17 metres in length. Now, I've since spent hours and hours with this one object, and I've shared its magic and intrigue with hundreds of visitors on guided tours and educational programmes, adults, students, all sorts of groups. And I always tell them that I used to pass by this object without much of a second glance. But the more time I've spent with it, the more I have seen. And I know there are many, many stories hidden here in this one object. So those are my two stories, my two examples of boring or perhaps mundane objects that I learned to love. So what does this tell us about how we can learn to love boring objects. Well, number one, spend some time slow looking with the object or artwork. Look, look, and look again. Take a notebook, make notes, write down your thoughts, write down your questions. Go back and take another look, and maybe this time go with a friend or a colleague. Discuss it again, perhaps use a thinking routine. So the second point is do some research. Find out what you need to know and try and answer the questions that you wrote down when you did your slow looking. Pique your curiosity further and find out more information. Number three, go back and look at it again armed with your information. Now I want you to think about what new questions you have. What are you still wondering about? What new details do you notice now? Number four, look for the hook. So think about what is it about this object that could be an interesting take on it? What angle or piece of information could transform this artwork or object into something engaging? Because with the right hook, you can completely transform almost anything into something fascinating. Number five, question your thinking about this object. So how could you think about this object differently? How could you challenge yourself to work with this object? How could you reframe it in a more positive way? Think also about the benefits of working with undervalued, boring or personally uninspiring objects. And also think about how you would create a discussion around this object or artwork that would excite you or challenge you. Number six, try things out. 
experiment and iterate when you work with this particular object with groups. And don't give up. If at first you don't succeed and you're still finding this object problematic, try something new. And finally, reflect. Reflect on the experience. What does this teach you about yourself? What will you learn from this? And how will this affect your practice in the future? So seven learnings from those two examples that I shared. And I really want to just say that spending time looking, slow looking with these two objects really allow me to focus on the questions and discussions that I wanted to have with my groups. And it also helped me to share with them my curiosity and enthusiasm as well. So next time you're unsure about an object or artwork, maybe you find it dull, uninteresting or even boring, spend some time with it, looking and thinking about it before you dismiss it out of hand. So I challenge you to go and find undervalued or boring objects and work out how you could work with them in an engaging way. And I'll leave you with one of my favourite quotes from Shari Tishman. The more you look, the more you see. The more you see, the more interesting the object becomes. Thank you for listening today. That's it for this week. Bye for now. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Art Engager podcast with me, Claire Baum. You can find more art engagement resources by visiting my website, thinkingmuseum.com. And you can also find me on Instagram at Thinking Museum, where I regularly share tips and tools on how to bring art to life and engage your audience. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share with others and subscribe to the show on your podcast player of choice. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time.